Imagine you've purchased a house without knowing that its foundation was built on quicksand. You rebuild it, repaint and renovate everything from top to bottom, inside and outside, apart from the foundation. You then move into your brand new home, only to find out it immediately starts sinking into the ground. With UEFI malware, it can be similar. If you don't know what the problem is, you can remove the payloads, uh, reinstall the operating system, reset things, replace software. You may even switch out the hardware and it keeps coming back because the code is hiding below all of that. My name is Ari Goretsky. I'm ESET's Distinguished Researcher and the host of the ESET Research Podcast. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with ESET malware researcher Martin Smolar, as well as Jean-Ian Boutin, the head of threat research at ESET, about a new type of boot kit, only the second one of its kind ever to be found, which digs itself deep into the EFI system partition used by UEFI. Welcome, Martin and Jean-Ian. Hello. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here today on the podcast. We appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. Just fantastic to have both of you here to talk about this. Um, but before we dive into the Espectre uh, bootkit, could you tell us a little bit about what UEFI is and what problems it's supposed to solve security-wise? Uh, well, yeah, actually, UEFI firmware is its successor to the legacy BIOS uh, systems. And nowadays, most of the uh, systems are using UEFI instead of uh, legacy BIOSes. It's, uh, it's actually a code that is responsible for starting up your computer. Uh, it initializes hardware and different devices there. And then it also starts your operating system and stuff like that. And what problems does it solve when it comes to security? Uh, I think that uh, one of the one of the most important things is uh, UEFI Secure Boot. Uh, so it it brought integrity verification to the uh, boot process. Interesting. So why is it a major security issue when you have malware that affects? Uh, the UEFI uh, firmware or the um, uh, ESP partition uh, that accompanies that. You know, this is not the first UEFI-based malware we've seen. Um, there have been flash implants, uh, Lojax, which uh, we discovered, um, Mosaic and Re uh, Regressor, and Moonbounce are another uh, pair. And we've also seen uh, UFI bootkits before, um, you know, particularly those from FinSpy. And I believe Hacking Team uh, is alleged to have had one as well. Um, so how many of these UFI um, malware threats have been found out in the wild so far? So not that many. Um, what's interesting, as you mentioned, we actually discovered Lojax, which we published about in 2018 on WeLiveSecurity.com, our ESAS blog. And back then, there was a lot of talk about this UFI malware, the fact that uh, 
everyone thought it existed. Like there was uh, this uh, Vote 7 uh, leakage uh, that happened uh, on WikiLeaks and that this explained how the CIA allegedly used uh, UFI malware in their operations. As you mentioned, there was a hacking team as well, but we actually never found in the wild samples. And Lojax was actually the first one to be to be discovered. And since then, uh, there has been a lot of cases. So you uh, mentioned Mosaic Regressor, and there's now Moonbounce as well. There are a number of these implants that are now uh, public and that have been discovered by various uh, research firms. And what's interesting about these implants is that it gives a persistence that is very hard to match because since it resides on the flash chip, as you mentioned, um, when the system is booting up, it will actually be able to compromise the system even though uh, Windows is reinstalled, even though you might replace some of your hardware such as the hard disk, uh, these implants will survive these uh, very hardcore uh, remediation steps. So this is why very sophisticated threat actor uh, will use these implants to make sure that they stay persistent on the system. So it, it seems like the main advantage of uh, using a UFI-based malware is just that it has this incredible ability to maintain persistence on the system. Um, is that correct, or are there other advantages for an attacker as well? Yeah, I think that there are more advantages. Well, actually, it's executed before the operating system, so uh, this kind of malware has high privileges. Um, it can hijack normal OS execution flow, um, it can disable some OS security features or similar things. So it's uh, very powerful, actually. As Janian already said, um, it's hidden uh, very well. So SPI Flash isn't something that uh, would be easily accessible to, to average users. So uh, you need some specialized software or some security solution that is able to scan it. Well, that brings up a, a question I've been wondering about. Yeah, with when you're working at such a low level um, with the system, how hard is it actually for uh, an attacker to um, not just write the malware in the first place, but then go ahead and plant it on the system? It's it's very hard. Yeah, maybe I can go back and talk a bit about Lojax. Um, so when we discovered this threat, what was another uh, very interesting discovery is the fact that these guys had used the tool to actually try to infect or compromise the SPI flash chip. And this tool was trying to abuse platform misconfigurations um, to actually go up and write on, on, the, uh, on, on the chip. And what's interesting is that um, you have to keep in mind that the UFI is a standard, but then different implementation exists. And back then there were a lot of platforms that were misconfigured, and that would not enable some of the security measures that would have prevented an attacker to actually write on the uh, on the flash chip. On the other hand, the attacker has to do a lot of background work to make it work, because even if he is able to go ahead and write the, the on the on the on a chip and get his malicious uh, software running on on the uh, while the, the the system is booting up, um, it, it needs to make a lot of tests to make sure that uh, everything is working properly, because uh, this is this is very. Uh, dangerous code that is that, that is running there, and there are, there exists a lot of different configurations. So there's a lot of tests that needs to be done to make sure that the system will not become unusable. Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, it was definitely harder 
to deploy logjax uh, in comparison to Spectre, because in case of Spectre, uh, only UFI secure boot needs to be bypassed or disabled. And if, if you can do this, uh, it's quite easy to mount ESP partition and then compromise the bootloader or copy around a file there. So, uh, Martin, in uh, just a couple of sentences, could you explain to us your your main findings uh, with the uh, Spectre uh, bootkit? Actually, it's a piece of malicious code that is executed before operating system is loaded. It's located on the EFI system partition. To achieve execution, attackers compromised a Windows boot manager, which is actually bootloader that is responsible for loading operating system. They did it in order to uh, deploy their uh, OS payloads, uh, which were most likely uh, used for cyber espionage. Very interesting and, and a little scary too. Um, now, this is the second, uh, only the second bootkit we've seen that affects the EFI system partition. C can you explain how that's different from the SPI flash and why we've seen you know, perhaps less of this type of uh, boot malware than the SPI flash malware? Uh, yeah, the main differences are uh, in the way they are stored and um, also the differences in phase that they are executed during the boot process. Uh, UFI firmware rootkits or SPI flash implants like Logix are stored directly in the small memory chip embedded into your computer's motherboard, so they are really deep and it's not that easy to access them. And uh, on the other hand, UFI bootkits are stored on the so-called EFI system partition, which is located on the hard drive or SSD, uh, what means that they can be accessed uh, quite easily like any other files on your C drive and uh, when it comes to execution, SPI flash implants are executed a uh, little bit earlier than uh, UEFI bootkits, uh, and it gives them also a little bit more power to influence the platform boot in a, in a bad way, of course. Interesting. So I know in your, your blog post on Wheel of Security, when you wrote that, um, you were not 100% certain of how... Um, the eSpectre was introduced in the first place. Have you found out anything more about that, or do you have any more, well, let's call them educated guesses about how it may have been injected into computers? It's not that hard to uh, deploy ESP implant once the secure boot is uh, deactivated. So maybe question is uh, just how they turned off or bypassed UFI secure boot. You know, there are multiple options like they could it could be turned off by the user on purpose maybe user was using some dual boot uh, solution with some linux distribution uh, that it does not support secure boot or um, someone else with physical access to the machine could disable it uh, in the bios setup utility or maybe there was some known or unknown uh, vulnerability exploited on the system but yeah we can only speculate yeah. And, and if you go back in the literature, 
uh, as you mentioned a bit earlier, there are not that many examples uh, of, of such an implant, right? So we're looking at threat actors that have the resources to actually make it happen as well. Uh, as Martin said, there are a number of ways to actually get your implant in, in this region, in this partition, uh, but getting it there, having the system compromised, disabling secure boot, um, like we know there are some vulnerabilities sometimes that might uh, exist that will allow an attacker to do that, but it, it requires a level of sophistication which is higher than your regular uh, malware attack. Is there anything that you can tell us in particular about where you found it or what types of systems you found it on, um, the industries that were targeted, uh, or even uh, locations? Uh, when it comes to UFI version of this Spectre bootkit, um, uh, we have found only one victim compromised by it, and it was in China. Um, but uh, honestly, we don't know the victim's background or something like that. We also uh, saw signs of compromise at one victim from the Taiwan, but this time uh, it was infected by the MBR or uh, legacy BIOS version uh, of this bootkit. So attackers were actually using uh, both of these versions in the wild. So um, you said uh, one sample was located in China, another was located in in Taiwan. Uh, does that give you any insight into who may be behind this threat? Well, we, we don't think that it's some specific uh, threat group, but um, there are some hints that uh, some, some Chinese group might, might be behind that uh, because, you know, we saw some uh, Chinese uh, strings inside user mode modules of the Spectre. Of course, it could be some uh, false, false flag or something like that, but um, in combination with, uh, with the location we found it, um, with low confidence, I think we can say it might be some Chinese group, but uh, we don't know which one exactly. Yeah, so every time we do this type of research, when we know that espionage is, is the, likely, um, the, 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 the likely goal of the threat actor, we're always trying to group them with all the clusters that we track internally. And for this one, there's not enough evidence to actually tie it to any of the known groups uh, that we are researching at ESET. Interesting. So an, an unknown threat actor using a novel means of maintaining persistence on a system conducting espionage. It sounds like you guys have all the fun. <laughs> and we get to record podcasts with you. So, Well, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> One thing that I've wondered about is um, is if eSpectre is related to the uh, specter of vulnerability that was found in uh, CPUs having to deal with speculative execution. <laughs> uh, not at all. It's just the name. Um, you know, it's it's combination of the ESP and and the specter like a ghost because it's you know stealthy. <laughs> Got it. Uh, it's just something I was personally curious about because the names were so similar. Okay. So you know, one thing I'm wondering about is um, because you did mention that this was, of course, a uh, 
UEFI um, threat. Um, does Secure Boot or a TPM chip offer any kind of protection against this kind of attack? Definitely, both of them can help, but in a different way. Uh, actually, UFI Secure Boot was uh, created to protect against such a threat. Uh, so if it's turned on, uh, it blocks execution of untrusted UFI drivers and applications. So it will also block uh, a Spectre from execution. When it comes to TPM, uh, it's a little bit different. It plays the crucial part uh, in the so-called measured boot. It won't stop an uh, untrusted executable from uh, loading, but the measurements uh, stored in the TPM uh, during the boot process can be used to see uh, whether the boot components or uh, security settings uh, have been changed. So it won't protect you, but at least uh, you know that uh, there is some problem in your computer. So at, at least you have a ability to get some kind of a notification. So definitely very good to turn those technologies on and make use of them. So you'd mentioned earlier that you'd not seen a lot of machines infected um, with the Spectre, but um, I'm wondering uh, just between the UFI version, uh, the MBR version, um, how many different versions uh, did you see out there in the wild? Well, only one UFI version, but um, I think maybe seven or eight versions for the legacy BIOSes. Uh, and we found the first one, uh, or, or we traced the first one back to the 2012. So it's actually now 10 years old. So it's quite a long time. And uh, differences between individual, individual versions weren't as big uh, as one would expect for a threat that is being developed for several years. So uh, um, one of the things that um, strikes me uh, as, as interesting is the uh, longevity of this, this threat. Why hasn't anything been found until now? Is it simply that it's not very widely used? Were security researchers not looking in that direction or something else entirely? I think that the main reason is that um, it wasn't that interesting uh, at that time, you know, because uh, we were we were detecting it from uh, from the 2012, but uh, we didn't think that it's something interesting until it uh, until it turned into UEFI. So maybe that's the reason. It takes a while before the, the threat is observed doing something threatening, I, I guess. Yeah, actually, we were protecting our customers, but uh, we didn't think that uh, this specific threat is uh, something that is worth uh, describing because, you know, there was a lot of uh, other um, BIOS bootkits and uh, MBR bootkits and much more advanced ones, but only this one turned into UFI. And the other interesting aspect of it is that, uh, as Martin already mentioned, uh, there was one sample file. So it's a bit of needle in the A-stack problem, right? So you have a lot of samples that comes your way. You need to pick uh, the right ones, the, most, the, the ones that look most interesting to actually analyze research and, and find out all of these interesting details that we've been discussing today. Um, and this is another aspect that explains why some of these threats take so long before it became uh, known publicly. So, so yeah, with, with 
at least a decade behind it, you know, clearly you're dealing with a a very determined adversary. And especially if they keep coming back to and refining uh, the, the malware. Thank you for that. So um, one thing that I was noticing when I had read the blog post was the very, it, it seemed, complicated series of steps that the malware was going through for bypassing secure boot. Is that uh, something that you've seen before? Uh, was that new to you? Um, this is actually something we uh, we don't know. Uh, we don't know how they bypassed uh, or disabled this secure boot. Um, and I think I've already mentioned that there are multiple options, like uh, some evil-made attack attacker with physical access to the machine and uh, turning it off uh, in the BIOS setup utility, or it could it could be uh, turned off on purpose by the user itself, or um, there could be some vulnerability. But uh, we, have, we we don't have some evidence or something like that that could prove that it was exploited. Another thing that I'm I'm curious about is you know. Aside from the originality of, of having to deal with a ESP uh, bootkit, in the code itself, um, did you see anything like a heavily obfuscated code, uh, anti-debugging or uh, reverse engineering uh, tricks, uh, stealth mechanisms, anything that the operator um, might have done to make it more difficult to understand how, how this particular piece of code works? I, I wouldn't say that there was some heavy obfuscation or similar, but I think it was definitely more challenging to analyze this kind of threat in comparison to some um, some common malware that you see in the parenting system, because you know it's doing a lot of uh, memory patching and hooking to deactivate some protections or just to execute a specific code at the right time. For example, you can't patch a function in a kernel memory if uh, kernel is not loaded yet, right? Uh, so in order to do that, Spectre needs to find a specific point where the kernel is loaded into memory, but still wasn't executed, hook it, patch some kernel function that hook, and then transfer execution to the normal boot flow. Uh, so it's not like a sequential uh, execution of the code, but it's more, more like uh, event-driven, and that kind of code is uh, hard to analyze. Another thing that clearly stands out about uh, this is it seems to be an espionage tool. It has a remote access uh, Trojan uh, capability as well as uh, uh, key logging uh, in that. Um, how sophisticated are those functions? It contains all the basic functionality that is expected from such kind of threat, like key logging, taking screenshots, uh, file system operations. Uh, downloading and uploading files, uh, updating configuration, and so on. And yeah, maybe maybe the keylogger was a little bit more advanced because uh, they weren't using some user mode keylogger, but instead they intercepted the keyboard driver from the kernel mode. So I would say that keylogger keylogger was about average when it comes to complexity. So um, we, we've talked a little bit about your findings and you know what you found and, and what it does. You know, one thing I'm wondering about is for 
UEFI and operating system vendors, is there something that they should be doing or uh, perhaps doing a better job of uh, to protect um, the uh, ESP? Uh, well, in case of uh, UEFI vendors, they are doing well, I think, because uh, UEFI Secure Boot is enabled by default on the most machines nowadays. So that's a good thing. Uh, and also, actually, uh, Microsoft implements uh, TPM auditing in BitLocker since some version of uh, Windows 10, which is a good thing because it means that um, it makes data, uh, disk data accessible only to the firmware code, only, only if the firmware code and uh, configuration appear unchanged. So it's quite good protection against uh, UFI threats. But sure, uh, sure, you need to have a TPM, um, and also your firmware needs to actually uh, measure data during the boot. Also, you need to be careful uh, with with this blocker because sometimes you can encounter some some unexpected problems uh, after firmware update or your configuration changes and so on. So you need to back up your recovery key definitely, unless you can lose your data. It is a double-edged sword, I suppose, having to secure the data, but also protect against these kinds of attacks. It's always a, a balance of what you can do. So uh, with all of that in mind, um, how exactly does one check to see if their system uh, has been infected by eSpectre? And if they find it, um, how do they clean it? I guess maybe just use some up-to-date security solution that is capable of scanning ESP and, uh, you know, UFI, SPF flash and stuff like that. And uh, cleaning UFI bootkit is uh, fortunately easy because, uh, as we already mentioned, uh, it's stored on the uh, SSD or HDD. So one can just format the ESP partition and recover, recover boot files from the um, existing Windows installation or um, format the whole disk and install OS from scratch. Okay, so basically like a BCD rebuild. Yeah, yeah. Or, or you can buy a new disk and change it. <laughs> but it's, it's more expensive. Well, um, with all of that in mind, is there something that users should be doing to protect against these kinds of attacks? I think that rule number one is uh, <laughs> keeping your firmware uh, up to date and also keeping up to date your operating system and all other software. But often, if you have some older device, even keeping it up to date is not enough because older devices simply does not use the latest security mechanisms. Also, people should definitely check if their uh, UFI secure boot is turned on and um, maybe uh, use some additional layer of protection, like uh, some security solution that is capable of scanning all that things. Cool. Thank you for that. This has been a, a, a very interesting threat to read about, and it, it really seems to fall into that space that we call emerging threats. We saw nothing for a very long time, and all of a sudden we are seeing SPI flash implants, uh, ESP uh, boot modifications. What do you think we might be seeing 
in terms of future threats in this space? I think that uh, we will actually see more this kind of threats, but you know it won't be like widespread. But uh, when it when we want to compare SPI flash implants and uh, UEFI bootkits, I think that UEFI bootkits are much easier to deploy. So they have much bigger potential for being misused by some uh, not so advanced uh, threat actors. Interesting. I'm I'm kind of reminded of uh, Stuxnet, which when it appeared was a very novel piece of malware and it contained a number of zero days. And uh, just a few weeks later, um, the uh, auto run vulnerability in that had migrated down to the, the script kitty level of worms on, on USB flash drives. Um, but it, it seems like this is a much more sophisticated and for now um, very targeted type of attack. So what we've seen um, in the past few years is that there was a lot of research done on the UFI implant. Uh, there was academic research, there was some academic project as well, but we were never able to actually see a real case where a threat actor was using these implants to actually compromise the system and stay persistent on it. Now, uh, we already mentioned Lojax in 2018. Now we have a number of cases, so there's certainly an acceleration in the number of public cases that uh, surface. And what we believe is that there will be more of them. But as Martin said, of course, you need a level of sophistication to pull it off. So this is definitely something that uh, for now will is likely to be used mostly for espionage purposes, uh, because the main advantage of jumping through all these, um, all these hurdles is to actually persist on the system and stay there without anyone actually uh, knowing it. So this is perfect for espionage type of campaign and not so much for ransomware threats, let's say. Um, that being said, definitely this is something that we expect will, will grow in the future. And especially uh, the EFI, so the, uh, on the system partition, on the ESP, as the, um, the technical level you need is, is lower than, than what you need to actually write on the SPI flash. So this is one of the things we expect as well, to see more of these ESP implant uh, in the wild in the future. Thank you for that. Um... I know it's never fun to think about what, what threats you might be facing in the future. Um, it's probably something that keeps a lot of us um, all up at night. But um, it certainly sounds like you guys are on top of things and leading the way in low-level threat protection from targeted attacks. And I want you to know I really do appreciate your coming on uh, to talk with us um, we have just a couple of minutes left. Do you have any closing thoughts that you would like to uh, share with us, Martin? I don't know. Keep safe. <laughs> okay. That's definitely something we'll try to do. Uh, Jean-Ian? Yes. So I will definitely continue research uh, on these uh, type of implants. Uh, we are uh, trying to uncover all these exciting cases to make sure that uh, we make the Internet a safer place. Obviously, this is a area of ongoing research, and there's still a lot of discoveries to be made. Where can we hear more about this from you? Do you have any upcoming uh, papers or presentations or follow-up blog posts planned? So yes, we are uh, 
going to present uh, this uh, all this research and more at RSA uh, in San Francisco in June, uh, Martin and I. Uh, so if you if you are there, feel free to come hear us, and we'll be there to answer any questions you might have on this research as well. Fantastic. That's the RSA 2022 conference in San Francisco coming June 2022. Exactly. We'll be sure to be there. Well, Martin, Janine, thank you very much um, for taking that time out of your busy schedules today to join us. And we are certainly looking forward to seeing what comes next from your Threat Research Lab. Thank you, Ari. Thank you. This has been an episode of the ESET Research Podcast. For more research and insights from our research, follow the ESET Research Twitter handle or read the latest on our blog, welivesecurity.com. The ESET Research Podcast has been a production of ESET, recorded with love and care in Bratislava.